Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show. Today I'm playing excerpts of a panel I moderated at the recent FCA Bethesda Health IT Day. The panelists were Patrick Flanders, the Military Systems Chief Information Officer and Deputy Assistant Director for the Defense Health Agency, Dominic Cousat, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology, and the Deputy Chief Information Officer at the Veterans Affairs Department, Rajiv Upal, the Director of the Office of Information Technology and the CIO at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and Jose Arrieta, the CIO at the Department of Health and Human Services. First, we hear from Rajiv Upal of CMS and Pat Flanders of DHA. At CMS, I think we process about more than a billion dollars worth of claims every night. So obviously large systems that we are taking care of. So in terms of transformation, the key, one of the key things we focus on is uh, how do we, you know, we build IT solutions all the time. And um, how do we get our folks within CMS uh, who are uh, building systems for our citizens and internal systems as well, that we get people to focus on the customer? And that's been one of our key initiatives. And to enable that, we focused on human-centered design. So almost everything we do, human-centered design is, is a central component of that. We start with that. You know, I'll go through a few more topics, and I can, we can come back and talk in more detail as to how we're doing human-centered design, how we're incorporating that. The, the next thing is obviously, as you've all heard, agile methodologies, that's a major push, making sure that most of our teams are following agile methodologies and also uh, sort of uh, putting on and taking on a product mindset as opposed to a project mindset. You know, and when it comes to projects, we are focused on milestones and uh, our outputs. When it comes to product, if it's a product mindset, it's more about outcomes. What are we going to produce and how is that going to appropriately serve the needs of the customer? Then moving from customer focus, uh, the next sort of major things that we focused on is obviously, as you all heard in, across the federal agencies, is modernization. You know, refactoring our systems. Can we make sure that our systems uh, can always recover gracefully if they ever, if there's an issue that happens with them, how do we get migration to the cloud accelerate? And there's a huge push on that. You, as you probably all know, CMS has, major, has made a pretty significant investment to, to the cloud and moving systems to the cloud. The third piece uh, is about security. And by security, by cybersecurity here, I mean we all know about ATOs and how we spend months before we can get an ATO, and we are trying to transform that so that it's not just focused on compliance, but also focused on enabling systems to be actually more secure. How do we make that happen? And last but not the least is to enable and make all this happen, focusing on employee upskilling. How do we get our folks the required skills that they need so we, as CMS, can get to the next level in modernization. Uh, one quick follow-up question. When you talk about human-centered design, the, the question people will ask is, how do you ensure your customers, the human, is at that center? Have you made a change internally, whether through your office, CMS, or through some other approach where you've said, okay, how do we 
hit upon our customers. Who are our customers? What do they need? How do we bring their in? How does their needs come first? And then the technology supports their needs. Walk me through maybe just a little bit. What we've started doing is as soon as we uh, have systems or projects that come down the pipe, or you know, going through the our governance process, we look at, okay, can, we, can you show us if it's a system that has a front end? Can, I sh- can you show me some wireframes? And if they don't have, we actually help them build wireframes. But the point of wireframes is you build a wireframe, go and talk to the stakeholders that are going to be using those systems, and you get immediate feedback. Oh, yes, I like that, or you missed this piece, or I'd like to have this. So that conversation with the stakeholders using wireframes is actually a, is a big eye-opener to most people who are building systems. It just leads to building systems that are eventually going to you know, better serve the customers that you're building the systems for. And because of that, you've gotten now better response from yep. your, your customers, meaning they have, oh, we're getting much more what we want now versus... And they just feel a lot more engaged. Yep. You know, they feel that being, they're being listened to. All right. Pat from DHA. So uh, I, I don't want to go a whole lot of background about the, the agency. Hopefully folks um, have some understanding of that. But in general, um, the National Defense Authorization Act of 2017 directed that uh, the Defense Health Aid Agency take over management and administration of the uh, military service treatment facilities, right? And so with that came all the networks. So I inherited uh, four networks, and the notion there was to take those and combine them into one modern one. Why is that so important? Well, because at the same time, we're implementing our new electronic health record system, and it is a centralized system, whereas the systems being replaced are distributed in asynchronous, in most cases, you know, right there on-prem in the basement of the hospitals. So the network now is huge, right? That's, that's the key enabler. And um, we now, as I think most folks know, are uh, working with the Department of Veterans Affairs, um, and we're, we're all going to be using the same system. That is also huge. You know, the key rigidity in what we have right now is the distribution of all the legacy systems. That goes away in the new system. And now with the VA using the same system, you know, what you've heard about in, in the press for a decade, you know, where we can't pass records, well, now there's no passing to be done. And not only between the DOD and the VA, but between the services. I'm retired Army. My records were not visible, you know, if I went to a Navy hospital or an Army hospital. So this is a, a, a really big uh, endeavor. Also part of that network is... Um, the ability to, to just provide better service and cybersecurity. So that's going to be one active directory for the first time. It's going to be uh, one security context. The VA is adopting um, the key aspects of that security context so we can actually share data at the local level where there's a VA and DOD presence in, this, in the same hospital. One cybersecurity service provider and one cyber operations center. Those things are all... Those things exist right now. It's just a matter of finishing the feeling. I think we're roughly 80% done with that. Um, I had a priorities chart. I don't know if it's in the read aheads or, or what. Ah, there we go. And so the number one priority says uh, desktop to data center. So that's that medical network modernization, right? That's the number one priority because it's the enabler for Genesis and improved security, sunsetting the legacy systems all those times. Of course, while that happens, no break in clinical care. 
And then finally, rationalization of all the stuff that's out there. I like to say, you know, because of the way uh, we came into existence, I own one of everything. Two years ago, I really did. Uh, it's a lot better now. So uh, Jason said, well, kind of focus on some things that you've done in the, in the last five months and what's coming up in the next year. Well, in the last five months, we basically put Tanium on 240,000 Windows endpoints. That's huge. We can now see real-time where things are. We fielded Splunk across the enterprise. Huge. And that's going to continue. That program ends October of this year. So it's got to be done or largely done by then. There will be some things that, that come along after that, but it will be mostly done. The next biggest thing is visibility of spend. That really has been the secret sauce to get us where we are up to now. I mean, before we couldn't see where the money was going. In the last 12 months, what we've been able to determine is that the savings created by sunsetting the legacy systems really are going to take until about 29. So what that means is we're going to be paying for two systems at the same time. Right? So we needed more money. That visibility is what let us go back and do that. So as part of the Department of Defense issue paper cycle, we just got about $1.7 billion put back in that budget between 21 and 24. So that's really big. As part of taking over the facilities, this past October, it really became real in earnest. So DHA now has management administration of all the CONUS MTFs. We're doing kind of a handoff for the next 12 months with the services. They're in direct support. In FY21, big change. The money doesn't flow to the services directly anymore, with the exception of readiness. The money flows into the DHA. So my ability to control and consolidate contracts increases, we'll call it, very significantly next year. And I think we've, we've had in the last five months two industry days to talk about another initiative I have where um, I'm trying to outsource as much of the commodity IT across the enterprise as possible. So right now that's about 200 contracts at all the treatment facilities. Um, I've got a very good team putting that together. I think a lot of people here have uh, questions about how we're coming with that. I see this. So um, we start the cost estimate um, the formal cost estimate in earnest tomorrow. I can't tell you yet which vehicle it's going to be on. We're still doing the market research. There's three or four that look promising, two of them from GSA. And that's about as far as I can go with that right now. So I can't ask you which contracts, right? <laughs> Not um, yet. <laughs> uh, actually, one thing you did say that, that is interesting, maybe shed a little light on because it may leave some people's head scratching is, you're not going to start seeing savings, and correct me if I heard this wrong, but until 2029 from turning off legacy systems. So, no, we'll start seeing, we start seeing them this year. Okay. Actually, we've actually sunset the first legacy systems at Fairchild where Genesis first went live. But it's a phase roll-in, right? And so uh, the, full, the full amount doesn't come until about 2029. But the phase-in takes place from then until now, and we're about 80% there by 2025. Okay. And, and the other piece of this is, since we're talking about transformation and driving transformation, when you reduce the, from four networks to one network and you're able to kind of add that one active directory, better security, uh, one security operations center, what difference has that made for DHA, for DOD at large? Well, I mean, if you just think about it in the terms of security, it's huge because there's, you know, 
one place that can monitor all those things. But with regard to customer support, right? So now that single network enables the ability to remote into everybody. Not, well, we can do these folks, but the people still on the old Air Force network, well, we can't do that with them, and we don't want to spend the money on the old networks that are going away. So it really helps with that as well. And then, of course, just the circuit upgrades that go along with that. I mean, we have places where there's 100K circuits still, and we're replacing it all with gigabit at a minimum. We have to take a break. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm Jason Miller, and today I'm playing excerpts of a panel I moderated at the recent FCA Bethesda Health IT Day. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today I'm playing excerpts of a panel I moderated at the recent FCA Bethesda Health IT Day. The panelists were Patrick Flanders, the Military Systems CIO and Deputy Assistant Director for the Defense Health Agency, Dominic Cousat, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology and the Deputy CIO at the Veterans Affairs Department, Rajiv Upal, the Director of the Office of Information Technology and the CIO at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and Jose Arrieta, the CIO at the Department of Health and Human Services. In this segment of the show, we hear first from Dominic Cusada of VA and then Jose Arrieta of HHS. You know, one of the great things about being at VA now is the IT transformation we're going through. It's a real exciting time to be at VA. And one of the most staggering things about being at VA is the scope and scale of it and and the the magnitude of our mission. You know, VA is a Fortune 10 or Fortune 5-sized entity, uh, over $220 billion a year budget. And we have now a $5.6 billion budget just for IT. And, you know, we, we support potentially up to 20 million veterans, and we have about a 400,000-person workforce right now. So, you know, the scope and scale can be pretty daunting. And VA has been using technology for a very long time. As you know, we, we've kind of been in the forefront of using technology to serve our veterans. But that has also resulted in some technical debt. So we estimate our technical debt is in the order of about a billion dollars across the VA. So one of the key tenants of our uh, current digital transformation strategy for the VA uh, is IT modernization, along with things like uh, customer service and customer experience, uh, strategic sourcing, IT workforce uh, management, and uh, seamless and secure interoperability. Those are our key tenants. But in uh, the area of IT modernization, we want to not only replace the aging equipment and infrastructure we have, but of course we also want to improve it. Our our customers, uh, both the VA employees and the veterans, really want the VA to be at the cutting edge of technology. So, you know, we want to make sure we're uh, exploring and investigating and partnering with you all to make sure we're not just replacing, but we're really improving and, and upping our game. Things like robotic process automation uh, are very important to us. We're one of the largest benefits claims processing organizations in the United States. You know, we're, we're comparable to any huge uh, insurance company, a big financial element to it. And robotic process automation, I mean, if that can shave off, you know, 10 seconds on millions or even billions of claims that we're processing, I mean, the, the payback on that is, is really incredible, and it's a force multiplier. So, so things like RPA are, are very exciting to us, and, and we want to learn from you how to best 
leverage it. In other areas, such as artificial intelligence, that's exciting to us. As you know, VA has massive troves of data. We have not only the data from our current constituency, we have to keep data by statute in the order of 70 to 75 years. So we have huge amounts of data that uh, is available to us. So what I ask myself and my team is, how can we get that data working for the veterans? Uh, We have it, it's there. Let's leverage it and use it for our citizens to, you know, provide them some sort of benefit or service. And some of the ways that we're doing that is we're using uh, artificial intelligence and uh, deep analytics and predictive analytics to do things like look at uh, patients' medical records or trends uh, and determine if they're at risk for um, opioid addiction. You know, we, we have to treat our patients. We have to, we have to control their pain. Uh, we don't want to not give them the, the pain reliever that they need. But we do want to be careful that, uh, you know, we don't fall into the to opioid addiction trap that many Americans have fallen into. So we can use analytics to help do some predictive measures to see who we might need to help. We can also do this uh, with... There are trends in, you know, hospitals. During a hospital stay, there's about an 11% chance you could die as you're a, a patient in a hospital. So how do we know who's at risk for that? So we can use uh, analytics from health information to help identify patients who are at risk while they're, at, they're having stays in our hospitals. Suicide prevention is another big one. There's, you know, in folks' medical records and in their, their history, in their service records, uh, we can determine, uh, based on what they've been through, what their health uh, care has been, who's at risk of suicide. So uh, we can help try and get ahead of that and uh, be there for them when they need us. So, you know, we, we really want to leverage technologies like this. Jim Jaffer, our CIO, and I were at a consumer electronics show in Las Vegas, and we were looking at a lot of great technologies, assistive technologies, robotics, for prosthetic enhancements, looking at retinal technologies where you can operate a computer, use software without ever using your hands. It follows your eye. It activates things on the screen through just the movement of your eye. I mean, these things are very exciting to us. If we can get these to a veteran that's in need, who's been paralyzed or or disabled in other ways, it can change their lives. So we want to build an infrastructure as we modernize that can handle these types of technologies, promote them, get them out to our veterans. Uh, Another thing that's important to us is outreach to rural communities. We have a huge amount of our veterans who are just not close to a medical center. So how can we better help them? How can we implement telehealth, telemedicine, telehearings, so that veterans don't have to drive four hours uh, or ask someone to drive them four hours to a medical center to get care? Uh, How can we just send them an iPad, ensure that there's a way that it it can get connectivity, they don't have to worry about it, and that they can see a doctor or a mental health professional or attend a hearing without ever leaving their home? I mean, again, it's an exciting time. There's a lot of, you know, looking at CES, walking the floor. There were so many technologies I just looked at and I said, that could help a veteran, that could help a veteran, that could help a veteran. So we look forward to working with you all on bringing these things to the VA. All right, so one thing that definitely comes to mind, Dominique, is you mentioned RPA, you mentioned AI, deep analytics, you mentioned telehealth, you mentioned big data, of course. That all comes back to the network, the network, the network. So like Pat... 
where he went from four kind of disparate networks to one and then added some more capabilities on top of the network. Where are you guys at with your network modernization? There's that nasty word, EIS, that's out there, of course. Nasty in a good way, Jose, don't worry. Good way. <laughs> in a good way. But walk me through how you guys are ensuring the network's ready. We're really looking at how to re-architect our network. Again, as we do this modernization, we don't want to replace. We want to improve. We've had issues with things like having you know, um, dozens of Active Directory um, instances across the VA. We want to unify those in, into one uh, approach. You know, even going uh, across government, you know, what Pat was saying is true. We're, the, the EHR system, it's massive. It's, gonna, it's serving millions of people. It's one system, one data source, one data lake. And we've shown that we can normalize our cybersecurity policies, our interoperability policies, and get the things connected seamlessly um, and consolidate things uh, in a way that makes it easier for us to manage the data and use things like artificial intelligence and RPA. So VA is in the midst of a huge transformation in terms of moving to an enterprise approach for everything that we do. We've set up a new enterprise portfolio management uh, function. Uh, We're moving to a product line management approach in how we service our customers, and there's going to be a portfolio just for enterprise services. So whenever we embark on a new project or embark on a a replacement of an old system, the very first question we have is what enterprise capabilities do we have in place and how can we take this solution uh, to an enterprise approach? That's the very first thing we ask. So, uh, And the, the things that we've done so far, it's already paying dividends and it makes it much easier to manage, much faster, much more responsive availability, integrity, much better security, much more reasonable to secure. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a key tenant for us. All right, Jose, bring in the relay, the, the last uh, mile here. If you think about it, in, for the folks in private industry, there's only two ways you grow revenue, right? You cut costs or you increase your customer base. So to start with, as in nine months as the CIO, I focus specifically on the 14,000 customers we serve and cutting costs. Because if I want to move into artificial intelligence and any type of machine learning capability, I have to create some credibility with our customer base, and in particular, the different funding functions that exist across our agency, which I'm just learning, and I'm sure most of them hate interacting with me at this point. So we've cut 20 to $25 million out of our operating cost. We've tried to cut out layers of overhead. We tried to focus in directly on the customer, move customer to the center of everything we do uh, with the idea of standardizing the way we do business on different platform capabilities that we currently have and then sharing those platform capabilities across our customer base to actually push, push our costs down. So that, that's kind of been step one. EIS is a great example of that. We took 12 different fair opportunities. We consolidate them into one. We think we'll make an award uh, here in the next couple of months. And, and we think in doing so, although it's a huge shift for the agency, the work we're picking up, the eight functional areas that we're going to pick up in our PMO that GSA used to perform in service, are going to give us technical flexibility because of the way GSA structured the contract. We'll be able to allow CMS, to, as an example, and I'm making this up, but CMS to bring on 5G capabilities, but look at it from the totality of the department and see how it's going to impact technical delivery across the entirety of our department. So the first thing is actually create some credibility, lower cost, focus in on the customer, make sure that the 14,000 customers we service understand what they're being billed for and what they're being paid for. And then we can roll into some of the other interesting things. So the next thing, and this is kind of new, 
I think I've talked about it publicly before, is from is cybersecurity, right? So when you look at the healthcare sector in the United States, we see a significant risk. Healthcare expenditure that occurs across the U.S. is basically transacted in the United States. It's not interconnected with the rest of the world. If you look at the banking system, it's interconnected globally. If you look at healthcare expenditure, 10% of U.S. GDP, it happens right here in the United States. We think it's a target uh, for our adversaries. So the first thing we did is actually, in the, over the month of July, we built a machine learning wrap around our tick. About 5,000 5, times the total number of pages in the Library of Congress is how much data hits our network every day. We want to be able to analyze that data in real time, focus in on the 19, 20 different incidents that our uh, security analysts should focus in on versus a pool of 100,000. So we're using machine learning wrap to, to winnow that down to 19, 20 incidents allowing our subject matter experts to focus their energy on that. second thing we did is we're actually moving our doorstep from the front door of HHS to Richmond. So if we have a ton of traffic coming at our network, why don't we deal with it? Uh, why don't we deal with it at Richmond? Why don't we deal with it at the network level versus deal with it w- when it gets to the doorstep? The last thing we did is to prioritize cybersecurity, you actually have to be able to explain it to people. And CPU usage is not something that your secretary is going to understand. So what we've done is we've actually created a dashboard of metrics uh, that you can download on your government phone and you can be updated as it relates to different adversarial activities that are occurring across the network. We've tried to explain it in human terms and distribute that, that to the leadership of, of HHS from a going back to kind of cost cutting and kind of predictive analytics, which is kind of the third piece, and it it is an update on HHS Accelerate. Uh, If we want to get better at security, standard configuration management is a key. Having one contract from some of the large OEMs that we buy licenses from allows you to do that. Uh, So we've used the data set in Accelerate. I'm not going to tell you the company, uh, the OEM, uh, but we will announce it in a couple of weeks here. Uh, we're going to buy through one artery. We're going to have a single portal to manage all those licenses. We think we'll be able to save somewhere around 33 to $40 million uh, over five years uh, from buying through that single artery. It gives us standard configuration management. Again, it lowers our costs, and it lowers the administrative burden on our workforce. So we're taking that data set that you've heard about that exists within HHS Accelerate. We actually built a couple of neural networks off of it, and we're analyzing prices paid in terms and conditions. We're looking at price differential, and then we're using that to have a friendly conversation with our industry partners who, who service us who, through licenses and say, look, we really want to get our costs down, and we want to lessen our administrative burden, and we have a lot of data to actually prove this, so we want you to work with us. And, and we actually have our first one. It, it's not awarded yet, so I'm not going to go any further uh, but we do expect to award it within the next month, and we will continue that for eight or nine other opportunities. Now, our approach holistically has been to uh, use human-centered design to build a series of microservices to show how we can function, be really, really light at an infrastructure layer in terms of what we're building. Most federal agencies, or at least programs that I've been working worked on before, they build out a lot of infrastructure. They get $20 million into their total investment, and nobody understands what that infrastructure is going to do. So we took an opposite approach, built out a series of microservices, went really light on the infrastructure layer, but just got ATO'd the way we wanted to operate and tested it. And then we flipped that on its head once we've kind of done the change management to build the microservices, and we're going to go to the market with a solicitation and say, this is how we want to operate We've gotten buy-in. We have a number of microservices that aren't currently provided in commercial off-the-shelf modules. We're going to look for a platform company to actually fill out that infrastructure, 
We can roll our microservices into uh, being delivered off of that platform, and we can leverage the modules that exist from that platform provider to fill in the other parts of our business process. Uh, that's been a strategy that we think allows us to test something at a very low cost, a couple hundred, two, two, three hundred thousand dollars, but actually get the benefit of a large platform provider's capabilities downstream versus buying the licenses on the front end, making a, a big investment on the front end, and not necessarily seeing the outcome or maybe not uh, getting uh, the buy-in from our workforce. Um, so that's the, the approach uh, from a strategy perspective that we've been taking, and I think that's uh, eased our move uh, to cloud. And, and the example, the last thing I'll say is that we can take, for example, that recurrent neural network, which data in and data out are different, but the mathematics that drive it are exactly the same. And in one instance, we may use it to read terms and conditions and prices paid on contracts. We can apply that to de-identified prescription drug claims data. We can then pull in a social determinants of health uh, platform, and we can do an analysis on the impact that policy is actually having in targeted areas around the United States. We built it at a very low cost where there was a guaranteed return on investment in our acquisition function, and now we can kind of reuse that in multiple mission spaces. And, and we're actually going to do that over the next couple of months. So in March, we'll have an update on, you know, if it worked or if it didn't. So you were able to save, you said, 20 to $25 million f- f- through operating costs. Were operating you, expenditures. Operating expenditures. Were you able to, is that call, real cost savings or is that cost avoidance? And then were you able to take that money and, and reapply it to some of these other programs and projects? Yeah, so what we did is we, we actually said we, we cut the cost out of our operating expenditures, and we actually turned to our customers and said, look, you can buy this a la carte now. So we may actually end up, if we're really good, we'll serve more customers, and the footprint of cost that we manage will go up because customers are using us through a pass-through account, but we've actually lowered the price they pay for the 28 different services that we charge them for by cutting their operating costs. Um, and we expect that they will then go and spend that savings on their mission space, but we have no authority to dictate how the programs do that. We have to take a break. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm Jason Miller, and today I'm playing excerpts of a panel I moderated at the recent FCA Bethesda Health IT Day. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today I'm playing excerpts of a panel I moderated at the recent FCA Bethesda Health IT Day. The panelists were Patrick Flanders, the Military Health System CIO and Deputy Assistant Director for the Defense Health Agency. Dominic Cousat, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology and Deputy CIO at the Veterans Affairs Department. Rajiv Upal, the Director of the Office of Information and Technology and the CIO at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And Jose Arrieta, the CIO at the Department of Health and Human Services. In this segment of the show, the panelists take questions from the audience. I'm Quintus Brown with Versa Integrated Solutions, and my question is around the opioid crisis. Congress authored the Support Act that has certain requirements for collecting data to better understand the opioid condition. How are you leveraging some of the tools and processes, artificial intelligence, data mining, et cetera, to identify areas that you can target to help improve the opioid situation? Specifically, if you can, around either claims or prescription drugs. I think it's very important that you understand uh, what happens to somebody that's addicted to opioids before you actually answer the question on the tools, right? So I want you to imagine that you are a single mom, uh, you're recently divorced, you live in a western part of New York State in a rural area, there's not a lot of community activity, I'm outlining social determinants of health right now, all information that's available in a marketing database anywhere. You're, you drive 40 minutes to work every day and you're an RN. 
and you hurt your back at work, and you are prescribed opioids, and you start to overtake them. Maybe you're taking 20 to 25 Vicodin a day, and your neighbor comes by one day to check on you. You say you're not feeling well, so you're going to stay home for the next two days. Uh, you sit on your couch, and you actually don't get up, and the neighbor comes by two days later to visit you, and it's clear that you have not gotten up off of your couch. So they, your neighbor scoops you up and takes you to a local hospital, rural, and the hospital says, we think you have pneumonia. We're going to put you on an IV drip, and in 12 hours, you'll be better. But guess what? In 12 hours, 90% of your major organs collapse. Your right lung maybe collapses. You're life-flighted to a hospital center where they identify the fact that you have sepsis. You have sepsis because you took 20 to 25 Vicodin a day for a period of six to eight months. You're likely to die. Now, they're going to take a blood specimen from you, and they're going to send it someplace, and in two days... They'll get a result of what type of sepsis you have, and there's only seven to eight different strands of sepsis in the United States, and they're all treatable if you know what one you have. But guess what? Can you survive for seven to eight days before we can find out what strand of sepsis to treat you? Think about that, right? And they're giving you seven or eight drugs to keep you alive during that seven or eight days, so you're dying of sepsis, and you're also dying of the seven or eight drugs, eight of which, seven of which you don't need, one of which is actually treating the strand of sepsis you have. That's the impact that opioids actually has on communities. This is a 62-year-old woman that's an RN. It was actually a family member of mine, and I sat in the hospital and talked to the doctor and understood this process. So when you think about artificial intelligence, when you think about a recurrent neural network, what are we doing? We're taking those social determinants of health. We're getting an understanding of who is at risk because of all those marketing factors, and then we're taking de-identified prescription drug claim data, and we're saying, what doctor is really loosely prescribing opioids? And when you can recurrently analyze that data set in real time, you can start to flag populations that are at risk, and you can better engage and drive policy in those regions to ensure that doesn't happen. But you can't lose the face of who you're trying to treat and who you're trying to support. And that's exactly how that evolves, and, and thousands of cases across the United States. And, and uh, I'll I mentioned earlier uh, some of the things we were doing for opioid abuse. I just, I'll uh, read off to you the acronym. It's the Stratification Tool for Opioid Risk Mitigation, or STORM. Uh, that is our predictive model tool that we use to leverage VA data to, as Jose said, uh, leverage some of the data, data and markers to, um, to sort of predict where someone's at risk. We actually, uh, VA is in partnership with HHS and CMS. We can get access to some of the Medicare and Medicaid data uh, when, uh, during a first encounter with a clinician and um, a, new, a patient so that even if they are new to the VA, we have access to some of the data of uh, medications that have been prescribed previously and some of the, the previous care. So, uh, again, we have a lot of data at our fingertips that's there and can help us. It's, it's, as Jose very eloquently said, it's a very complex issue, and it's not always a very obvious thing. So how can we use the data to um, sort of sort through all of that? Yeah, long story short, uh, the, the DOD also has a similar capability for all of our data um, with a predictive analytic uh, layer on top of it, and we built that about a year and a half ago, and we've demoed it at a couple of our conferences. Actually, um, on the same lines as what we're talking about data, is we all know we have so many copies of, we have no lack of data, and we have many copies of data, so 
to get around that and to get a single source of truth, making sure we are all working off of the same, same thing. We've started pilots on you know, using technologies like data lakes and making sure we have the appropriate governance around data. So it's not just, yes, we want to do the predictive analytics and all of those things, but also make sure that we have the right governance policies and the technologies so we enable all that. And, and let me just offer one other quick question. Since we've got a room full of industry, the, the question that comes up is, okay, you're doing certain things today, but where's the hole, where's the gap? And whether it's opioids or, or more data more broadly, is there a gap in your needs? Or is there, is there something that you say, you know, it'd be great if, I'll just open up to the panel. The gaps, you know, when I talked about earlier, it's the gaps I see that we've, you know, we've been producing IT systems for a long time, and we probably haven't focused enough on the human-centered design aspects, which is what I touched, touched upon earlier, and the fact that we have so many systems that are on-prem and how do we modernize them, getting off of the mainframes and moving to the cloud, that's a pretty major initiative. And maybe just as big a gap is the upskilling of our employees. How do we get our employees the, and, and enable them to be able to understand all the data and technologies and methodologies so we can get to these new platforms and techniques? Thanks. Uh, so I'd say a, a gap for us um, is, you know, the, the massive amounts of data that we have. You know, what is our data strategy to normalize that data and tag it and so it's more useful? It's a lot of raw data and, you know, we, we really need to figure out better ways to tag and normalize that data so that it's ready to more amenable to supercomputer processing capabilities and predictive analytics. So we have a, you know, a bit of a ways to go there. We're using what we can, how we can, but you know, I think we have a journey ahead of us uh, to get the data more in a more useful state. And I think the other piece, and, and we haven't talked about it at all in the federal space, but it's extremely important, and I would ask for industry's help in this, is data labeling. Everybody wants to talk about artificial intelligence, and I don't consider RPA of real artificial intelligence. But if you're talking about cutting-edge artificial intelligence, you need, we need to figure out how to label large data sets. And, and a lot of our competitors have figured out how to do that uh, with a low-cost workforce that exists in their countries. How do we actually label data rapidly? How do we partner with industry? How do we partner with the academic community to do la data labeling so we can do real facial recognition artificial intelligence, so that we can do real artificial intelligence? We have to take a break. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm Jason Miller, and today I'm playing excerpts of a panel I moderated at the recent FCA Bethesda Health IT Day. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing excerpts of a panel I moderated at the recent FCA Bethesda Health IT Day. The panelists were Patrick Flanders, the Military Health System CIO and Deputy Assistant Director for the Defense Health Agency. Dominic Cousat, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology and Deputy CIO at the Veterans Affairs Department. Rajiv Upal, the Director of the Office of Information and Technology and the CIO at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And Jose Arrieta, the CIO at the Department of Health and Human Services. In this last segment of the show, the panelists continue to take questions from the audience. Thank you. Um, my questions, in fact, I have two of them, is around interoperability. The first question is to Dominique. Now that VA is going through the modernization with Sonar and so is DOD, uh, can you tell us a little bit about 
how the interoperability is enabled between the two for the continuity of care for active duty moving to VA. Uh, and my second question is to Rajiv on CMS, uh, the meaningful use case, which is promoting interoperability. VA's cloud-first and COTS-first approach is helping. Our previous electronic health record was very proprietary. We had about 130 different instances spread all over the United States. You heard Jim Jaffer earlier say, if you've seen one VA hospital, you've seen one VA hospital. It was all different. It would have been very hard to support interoperability, interconnectivity with you know, our partners at DOD, the military services, HHS, uh, CMS, with such a you know fragmented, federated approach, so moving to COTS tools like you know VA and DoD are moving to the Cerner product has really helped us with some of that normalization. Um, using cloud services gets us in an environment that's more scalable and amenable to partnerships. They're not in proprietary data centers that have to be penetrated. And the other thing is policy. So I think the federal government's done a really good job normalizing itself against the unified cybersecurity policy and information security policy using the NIST policies. Seven or eight years ago, you couldn't say that. Uh, DOD had its own 8500 series security controls. The IC had its own DSCID 6.3 security controls and baselines. The civilian agencies were using NIST. The Committee on National Security Systems was using its own policy. Uh, we came together. We said this doesn't make any sense. We have more uh, in common than not. We can follow the same set of security controls, the same baselines, and use the same process for risk management. And your federal government came through, and we normalized it. So now that made it hugely easier for us between DHA and VA to normalize the security and design a security architecture and a security control array that was mutually uh, amenable to both sides because we're using the same reference security uh, baselines and architectures and we're speaking the same language. We're, we're so. basically, we're adopting the common processes that go with it, kind mm-hmm. of the pile on what Jose was saying yep. too. It's not just about the systems. Right. Yeah, I probably just second that. We're on the same path in terms of obviously enabling the cloud, also enabling APIs, making use of APIs as much as possible. In your question specifically about the hospitals, I'm not sure I can answer that. There's obviously a lot of work going around on policy as relates to those things. But there's a lot of focus on enabling all the various standards that are the newer standards that the industry is trying to adopt, whether it's fire or uh, many of the other standards. So there's a lot of, lot of work in all of these areas that CMS is uh, enabling. That's all the time we have for this show. Today I played excerpts of a panel I moderated at the recent FCA Bethesda Health IT Day. The panelists were... Patrick Flanders, the Military Health Systems CIO and Deputy Assistant Director for the Defense Health Agency. Dominic Cousat, the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Information and Technology and Deputy CIO at the Veterans Affairs Department. Rajiv Upal, the Director of the Office of Information Technology and the CIO at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And Jose Arrieta, the CIO at the Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.
Did you know 77% of women who wear bladder weakness products experience intimate skin irritation? As if having incontinence wasn't stressful enough. But Tenna Intimate Pads have been gynecologist tested and do not cause skin irritation. Gentle on my intimate skin. I need to try Tenna Intimate Pads. Visit TennaSample.com for your free sample. Kind to skin protects like Tenna.